This is Viking Village, the story of Formby. Written by Edith Kelly on behalf of the Formby Society in 1973. In this chapter, chapter three, we look at the trouble with sandstorms in the 1700s, how they tried to stop coastal erosion with star grass. We look at why the lifeboat was needed, Liverpool getting busier, Formby Chapel, now known as St Luke's, is given in detail. And then we look at the lighthouse, Formby Lighthouse, a landmark used up until the Second World War. After that, we look at the pine woods, the final solution to coastal erosion and to stopping the sands making Formby look like the Sahara Desert. And then the arrival of St Peter's Church all the fabulous attributes for that that we still enjoy today. Thanks to Joan Rimmer for reading Viking Village by Edith Kelly and the Formby Society, published in 1973. Viking Village by Edith Kelly. Chapter 3, Destruction and Renewal. Formby Chapel. Saxton's map of Lancashire, 1577, the first map to show any detail of the county, indicates Formby by the symbol for a church. But although it is marked Formby, the church is roughly placed in raven mills near to the shore. The date of the building of this church is not known, but the Cockersand Abbey records show it to have been there in the early 12th century, between 1194 and 1212. It is normally referred to as a chapel since it was dependent on the mother church of Walton on the Hill, the parish church of West Derby. The mother church owned an eighth of a caricate of land in Ravenmills, which was for the support of the chapel. Although Walton Church was some Anglo-Saxon remains, it is unlikely that Formby Chapel was built in Saxon times. It is more likely that the chapel was built in the period following the Norse settlement of the 10th century, as the Harkirk in Little Crosby probably was, and even more likely that it was built in Norman times. After the destruction of the chapel in the 18th century, a font was found lying in a cop near the churchyard, which has been identified as of Norman date, 11th or 12th century. Before it was rescued, it had been used by local farmers for sharpening scythes and the carving was very worn. There are, however, still traces of decorative carving on it, which is typical of Norman work. The base is carved into 23 scythes, a rather odd number. The old font is now in the Church of St Luke, not far from its original position. There is hardly likely to have been a church of Norman date without a population for its ministry. The evidence of the Abbey records and the presence of the chapel in Raven Mills su suggest that in these early times, Raven Mills was the most important, or perhaps the most populous, of the manors in the region. The designation Formby Chapel was possibly given at a later date. Little is known of the structure of the chapel. One hearsay report is that it was 15 feet wide and 30 feet long inside measurements. There are many early churches that are of similar size. 
It was probably a simple rectangular building without aisles. The accounts, which are still extant from 1705, give us some insight into its later appearance. 1705, tables of commandments set up. 1705, pointing the church and straw for plaster. 1706, white liming the church. 1706, bell ropes for the church. 1706, sounding board for the pulpit. 1706, for an hourglass for the church. 1711, new rails for the communion table. 1711, glazing the bell house window. 1711, a whisket or basket for church use. 1716, gallery roof repaired with flags from the Delft. 1719, a sundial for the churchyard, now at St Peter's Church. 1728, chancel level raised with stone from Cleves Hill. 1730, north door repaired. The clerk's salary was five shillings per annum. The parson received one shilling and fourpence for a funeral and the clerk eightpence. Unfortunately, the records are broken off in the thirties. As we have seen, the sea was encroaching on the land at many points throughout the years up to the end of the 18th century, and the land in the Ravenmills area was still being eroded. This century in particular seems to have seen many great storms on the Lancashire coast. Nicholas Blundell of Little Crosby describes in his diary a terrible windstorm which began on February the 1st, 1715. There was a most prodigious wind it blew down Thomas Marrow's, the tailor's barn, and did more damage in this town than has ever been done by wind here. I had a brick barn in the coppice, blown down. James Davy was blown off his house and very ill hurt. The salt water was carried from the sea with the wind to Holland near Wigan, as some have told me. But it is undoubtedly true that the herbs and leaves in my gardens were salt with the seawater. On February the 23rd, he says, I went to my workmen as were at my great cop by my grand watercourse, being the sand is now blown over it in many places. Chief damage was upon barns and many of them were built of brick and in good repair, of which mine was one. On October the 6th, 1717, he reports, about 10 of the clock at night, there was very great and unusual cracks of thunder for these parts and lightning with rain. The wind being very high, Thomas Sayer and I got up about midnight and went to see if the mill was still standing. 1719 February, very hot for the season and most extraordinary great winds. From the middle of November till the end of December, extremely wet and very great winds. In 1720, there was a great flooding of the Lancashire coast, which was most severe in the Ribble estuary and on the land around the Alt. Again, Nicholas Blundell reports it. 1721, June 20th, Parson Acton and Mr. Sire and Mr. Byron, the church wardens, were here a begging upon account of the great losses sustained in Lancashire in December 1720 by the violent overflowing of the sea. 
it had overflowed 6,600 acres of land, had washed down 157 houses and damnified 200 more. The whole loss was computed to be more than £10,227. A church brief was issued for collections to be taken in churches all over the country to compensate people for their losses. Steps had already been taken in 1711 to prevent the sand hills from being blown inland. The landowners began to include in all their leases a clause compelling tenants of land near the shore to plant on the sand hills star or marrow grass, which grows in sand and binds the sand together, preventing it from being lifted by the wind. But in 1739, Another great storm blew the sand in great clouds covering the ground for over a mile inland and burying everything within sight. This latest storm blew down the church and buried the gravestones in the graveyard. It demolished those houses that were still standing and filled in with sand a freshwater lake called the Kirk Lake that lay in front of the church to the east at the end of Kirk Lake Road. This storm put an end to the life of the little church and it lay for many years deserted. The messwages, tofts and crofts of raven meals also disappeared for the population, which must have been moving inland for some time now, finally retreated to the neighbouring manors of Formby and Alka. Andrew Brown's orchard, which was famous for its apples, was at this time buried in sand and abandoned and the apparently prosperous people of the district called the Park, many of whom contributed to the 15 tax, were forced to move elsewhere. From these circumstances, we have inherited the modern names of Park Road, Andrews Lane and Andrews Yort, a yort being a garden. The sand covered the ground deeply for at least a mile inland from the coast, leaving a desolate landscape, which one traveller, many years later, compared with the Sahara Desert. The Reverend A. Hume, Vice President of the Lancashire and Cheshire Historic Society in 1855, accepted the local tradition that some of the Scottish soldiers retreating from Derby after their attempted march on London in 1745 were billeted in the decaying village of Ravenmills. This could well be true, for some of these troops passed through Wigan on their way to Carlisle and they were very unwelcome in most of the towns which had formerly supported them. The western coastal districts, being largely Catholic and Jacobite, would be more likely to help them. This story has been very much misquoted among local writers and has been wrongly used to prove that there was a port at Formby at that time. The court book of the Manor of Formby for 1730 contains this item. Peter Jump, for not setting star on two days, fined two shillings. In 1742, an act was passed by Parliament for the more effectual preventing of the cutting of star or bent. Whereas upon the northwest coast of this kingdom, and especially in the county palatine of Lancaster, the sea is bounded and the adjacent lands are prevented from being overflowed by large sand hills to the terror and danger of the inhabitants who are thereby exposed to the inundation of the sea. And whereas it has been found by experience 
that the best way to preserve the said hills from being blown away is to plant them with a certain rush or shrub called star or bent. And whereas many idle and disorderly persons residing near the said coasts do unlawfully and maliciously in the night time, as well as the day, cut, pull up and carry away the star or bent. And instead of working in an honest manner for the maintenance and support of their families, do privately sell the said star or bent for making of mats brushes and brooms or besoms. It shall be lawful for His Majesty's Justices of the Peace to issue warrants to apprehend the persons and being therefore convicted, they shall pay the sum of 20 shillings, one moiety to the informer and the other to the Lord or owner of such star or sandhills, or to commit the person to the house of correction for the space of three months and for a second offence, one year in jail, there to be whipped and kept to hard labour. And if any star or bent shall be found in the custody or possession of anyone within five miles of the sandhills, they shall be convicted and pay 20 shillings. Map making was the winter occupation of many Formby people and the star grass must have disappeared at an alarming rate. Star lookers were appointed by the court leet, not as astronomers, but to watch the shore and see that the very important star grass was planted and not removed. These precautions came too late, however, to save the manor of Ravenmills from destruction, and it was not till a hundred years later that any successful attempt at recovery of the land from the sand was made. Formby Creek. There is a deal of mystery still about the Formby shore in past centuries. Maps of the Lancashire coast are inconsistent. Saxton's map of 1577 and Speed's map of 1610, which largely copies Saxton, show sand in the northern estuaries, but none near Formby, at the mouth of the Alt or at the Mersey mouth. Herald's map of 1598 shows sand along the coast from Liverpool to the Alt, but none at Formby. From this, it has been inferred that there were no sandhills at Formby until the 18th century, when the documents previously referred to provide definite evidence. But sandhills were not marked by early mapmakers who took for their coastline the landward edge of the sand dunes, hence the great irregularity of the coast on these maps. Sexton and Speed do not mark the beach either in this area, and indeed we can prove nothing from the 16th and 17th century maps except that they cannot be relied on. There is proof, however, of sandhills at Formby in the 17th century. A document drawn up in 1669 for the two landowners, Henry Blundell of Ince and Richard Formby of Formby, arranged for a division of the Hawes, Sandhills and Coney Warrens of Formby. Between them, so that neither should kill or capture conies with nets, dogs or ferrets within the boundaries of the other's share. Collins' map of 1689 also shows sandbanks at Formby. The controversy about sand at Formby arises because undoubtedly ships were registered as of Formby in the 16th and 17th centuries. We must keep this in proportion, however, 
and not make extravagant claims for a great port of Formby as some writers have done. Liverpool itself was not a busy port until the 17th century. Chester had formerly been the port for the northwest of England, but owing to the increasing silting up of the Dee estuary, its trade had declined. Its landing place, once in the town, had moved further and further down the estuary towards the sea coast until boats had to unload their cargo into smaller boats at the mouth of the river in order to reach the shore. Liverpool and Chester were great rivals, the one refusing to recognise the other's superiority. In the 17th century, the growing importance of the trade with Ireland, the carrying of linen from Ireland and of Manchester cloth back to Ireland, began to increase substantially the trade of Liverpool. In addition, there was a good deal of coastal trade between Liverpool and the little ports of Wales, North Lancashire and the Isle of Man. Formby was probably engaged in this coastal trade. In 1626, a, returning, a return of shipping from the Lancashire coast was made to the government by the Earl of Derby. Sir Richard Molyneux carried out the investigation, which gave the following information. Chester and its creeks. 15 vessels, total 383 tonnes, involving 63 men. Liverpool and its creeks, 24 vessels, total 462 tonnes, involving 76 men. Beaumaris, three vessels, total 34 tonnes, involving nine men. Carnarvon, two vessels, total 26 tonnes, involving six men. Part of the Liverpool tonnage, which by now outstripped Chester's, belonged to its creeks. Further lists named 13 ships of Liverpool, the largest of 40 tonnes. Formby was listed as a creek of Liverpool, with nine ships totalling 263 tonnes, the largest one being 60 tonnes. Altco was also listed as the creek of Liverpool, with three ships totalling 42 tonnes. The goods carried by these ships were mainly corn, cheese and other foodstuffs. A creek is described as a place to unload wares in which officers are or have been placed by way of prevention of frauds in the customs, not out of duty or right of attendance, for they are not legally allowed without particular licence or sufferance from the port or member under which they are placed. This definition is somewhat involved. Are we to infer that Formby could have been taking part in unlicensed trade? By 1738, Formby's name, along with that of Alka and the Grange, had been removed from the shipping lists. In 1715, John Sellers in the English pilot, describing the entrance to the port of Liverpool from Hyle Lake, says, There is another channel betwixt the Formby and the flat shoals of the main, where you may sail along the Formby in three, four or five fathoms of water. But Formby Channel was not marked or buoyed and so was avoided. The prevailing wind was west or southwest, and Formby Wharf was a lee shore, which the seaman was glad to avoid. Though with an easterly wind when leaving the Mersey on the ebb tide, 
the mariner might choose the Formby Channel if bound for the northwards. This does not give credence to the idea that Formby was then on the way to becoming a great port, as some people have claimed. In 1765, the deterioration of the Formby Channel is mentioned. In places where there were formerly five and six fathom at, fathom at low water, in spring tides there is scarce 12 feet at present. This passage without a pilot is very dangerous and even the pilots venturing with westerly winds have miscarried and it is strongly recommended that no stranger attempt this passage though with a pilot when the wind is to the west of northwest. Many vessels are reported to have been lost there. In 1771, a chart of Liverpool Bay shows Formby marks for the new channel, the Rock Channel, and mentions the old Formby Channel's further deterioration. This deterioration still continues. Taylor's Bank, which lies off Formby Point, has been moving nearer to the coast for many years and the depth of the channel at low water has been constantly decreasing. It has been often stated that the building of the first dock at Liverpool in 1711 and of, of the revetment walls in the Mersey caused an increase of sand lying at Formby. This fits in well with the beginning of the noticeable deterioration of the channel. The trend reached its climax with the great storms of the early 18th century and it seems as though these storms finally destroyed any claims Formby might have had to being a centre for shipping. In 1711, as we have seen, the first leases compelling the planting of stargrass appeared. From this time on, Formby Creek and Formby ships disappear from the records. It is probable that even before this time, ships of any size could only land at high tide and when the wind was in the right quarter. There is, however, hearsay evidence that there was a coastal fishing village where ships could tie up and although the whole matter must remain unproven, this evidence is given here as a matter of interest. The information comes through the Reverend Robert Court, who was curate of Formby, St Peter's, in 1787 and vicar in 1793. He said, that a man who died in 1787 and had occupied a house near the churchyard, which was overwhelmed in 1739, had told him that when a boy, he had played on Formby Quay and jumped off it onto the decks of ships tied up there. It was also said that the port of Formby was situated 600 yards northwest of the present St Luke's Church. Dr Sumner, a famous inhabitant of Formby, who died in 1883 at the age of 84, said that in his youth there was evidence that the site now occupied by Alka Rifle Range had been a harbour in which large boats rode. These reports suggest that there were indeed two ports or landing places corresponding to Alka and Formby in the 17th century shipping records. The coastline near the mouth of the Alt has been greatly changed in 1797, a policy of reclamation of land was put in hand by the Alt Commissioners. Gorse faggots were laid at intervals along the shore to trap the sand, and gradually a new spit of land was built up, which is now the Alt Rifle Range.
So the evidence of a port has gone from there just as it has been from Formby. There are many stories in connection with the Grange at Olka, the former Grange of Worley Abbey. Besides the stories of secret landings and embarkings of Catholic priests after the Reformation, there are rumours of escapes of royalist supporters during the Civil War and of the landing of Irish helpers for the abortive Lancashire plot in 1694. There are also many stories of the smuggling of brandy into the county, and Nicholas Blundell himself confesses in his diary, February the 3rd, 1721. This night I had a cargo of 16 large ones brought to Whit Hall. February the 4th, William Carefoot covered the cargo very well with straw. Later, the diarist writes, Mr Thomas searched the West Lane house and a deal of the outhousing of this house for brandy, as he heard was concealed here. I feel sure, although without any evidence at all, that the worthy inhabitants of Formby, as well as those of Little Crosby, were not averse to a cask of cheap brandy, and those local sailors and fishermen who knew the winds and tides probably made a pretty penny in the trade. There were two landmarks for Formby, shown only on Robert Williamson's chart of Liverpool Bay for 1766. One was built about 1683, a brick tower 30 yards high at the mouth of the Alt on the north bank. The other, which was also a brick and which later became the Formby Lighthouse, was built in 1719 on the south bank of the river near the Grange. These towers were aligned to mark the channel into Liverpool. The second tower became a lighthouse from 1834 to 1839 when the Victoria Channel was opened. It was lit again from 1851 to 1856 when again it became a landmark only. A traveller to Formby described it as an upended bolster. Certainly it was not a thing of beauty. In 1941 it was blown up to prevent German planes from using it as a guide to Liverpool. Strangely enough, although called Formby Lighthouse, it was actually in Olka. The lifeboat house was built at Formby Point in 1776. It was withdrawn from service in the 1920s when there was so much sand in front of it that a team of horses had to drag the lifeboat across the sand to the water on rollers. At one time, all the members of the crew were from one family, the Aindos. The lifeboat and the lifeboat house have been removed after being repeatedly overwhelmed by sand, and the tide now reaches beyond the site where the boathouse stood. The stargrass on the dunes halted for a time the inroads of the sea, and there was building up of sand at many points until 1906. Between 1845 and 1906, there was 720 feet of accretion at Formby Point North near Victoria Road. But between 1906 and 1945, owing to wave erosion, 740 feet of land was lost to the sea. This erosion still continues in the same places and the Pine Tree Cafe and several holiday chalets at Victoria Road have been washed away in recent years. Attempts at reclamation have been made from time to time, apart from the planting of stargrass. Mr. C.S. Well Blundell 
gave evidence in 1911 to the Royal Commission on Coast Erosion and Afforestation. He described how he had set up brushwood groins on the shore, close to the sandhills, and planted stargrass behind them. But exceptionally high spring tides, driven into the sandhills by violent gales, had destroyed his efforts. He had, however, gained about 100 yards to seaward in 20 years. He had planned to make a railway along the coast from Birkdale to Formby by the sea, see chapter 6, and an esplanade, but had had so many setbacks from gales that he had abandoned the plan. He said that the slacks could be converted into good pasture by drainage, but the only way of building an esplanade was by the German plan of converting sand into sandstone blocks on the spot by a kind of ambulant factory moving along the shore close to the hills. There is, he said, a successful manufactory at Hightown Station on my cousin's land, Mr Blundell of Crosby. The land he had saved, he said, had no value at all. The brushwood groins, he mentions, were uncovered by the wind and tide on the shore a few years ago, but have now been washed away. On the other hand, both landowners, the Blundells and the Formbys, successfully converted sand further inland into pine woods by careful planting. From 1894 until the present day, planting has been undertaken at Ainsdale, Freshfield and at Formby, and areas of conifers, Austrian pines, Corsican pines and Scotch firs have been established. Some nearer to the sea have been overwhelmed by blown sand. Some have been destroyed by fire and some damage has been caused by the infestation of a beetle. But the established woods have done a great deal to regenerate and beautify an area that was once so desolate. The golf course, the Nature Conservancy and the National Trust now own parts of the land and the foreshore and have played their part in forming areas of resistance to the onslaught of wind and tide. With a little imagination and a deal of effort, the shore and its approaches could be made exciting and attractive, and the whole coastal area could be a great asset to the people of Formby and to visitors from the whole of South Lancashire. But if this is undertaken, it should be the prime object to preserve the natural beauty of the land and coast. Conservation should take place to prevent a further loss of land with more tree planting and more stargrass. It is important too that entrances to the shore over the sandhills should be confined to certain well-marked paths. The late Dr Gresswell pointed out that trampling on the star grass destroys it for it needs a constant supply of fresh sand at the roots. People walking on the sandhills cause the sand to slip away and the grass dies, leaving the shore at the mercy of wind erosion. Any development of promenades, stalls, chalets and the like would completely destroy the character of this coastline, the only stretch of undeveloped coast in this part of Lancashire. The seabirds and the land birds, the wildlife and the great variety of wildflowers would be lost. The deterioration is already rapid and the rehabilitation of the shore is a first priority for the citizens of Formby. The new church of St Peter. 
For a few years after the, after the destruction of the old chapel in 1739, Formby was without a church. Burials were continued at the old graveyard after it had been partly dug out of the sand, but it is not known where the services were held at this time, though probably some provision for this purpose was made at Formby Hall. In 1742, a start was made on the building of a new church for the village. This time, the church was to be built inland, away from the dangers of sea and sand. Some of the stones were rescued from the old site and carried to the new, to be used in the foundations of the church. The sundial was rescued and re-erected and stands now near the porch of the new church. The records of the old church were also preserved and an oak chest dated 1740 was made to hold them and the plate until the new church was ready to receive them. A bell dated 1661 was also removed and placed later in the turret of the new church. In November 1742, a church brief was obtained to enable collections to be made on a certain Sunday in all the churches of the realm to assist with the cost of building. This raised the sum of 1,154 pence, a very niggardly contribution it seems, though it would be the equivalent of a much larger amount today. The new parish church was opened in 1746 and consecrated in 1747. It was built in the Georgian style of architecture so popular in the 18th century. A gallery with an outside staircase was added at the West End in 1830 and in 1884 a porch on the south side which keeps out the draughts although it is not in keeping with the architectural style. The gallery was to house the choir which consisted of men, women and boys and also the musicians who accompanied the hymns on, on the flute and the fiddle. Later a bassoon was bought for church use. This was replaced by a harmonium in the 1870s and an organ in 1885. At some time after the first building, north and south galleries were erected and seats were installed at the expense of the parishioners and became the private property of the subscribers. There were square pews separated by the aisles. The minister's reading desk was against the south wall of the nave and on the right were the squire's pew and a pew for the servants and tenants of the hall. On the west of the minister was the clerk's desk. Over the vestry door was placed the royal coat of arms of Queen Anne, dated 1710, which had been brought from the old chapel. Opposite the church in Green Lane stood the Formby Arms Inn, where people could obtain refreshment for themselves and their horses between services. We must remember that the church served Ainsdale as well as Formby, so that the inn was very necessary to those who travelled long distances. The oak chest which held the plate and documents was inscribed with the names of the chapel wardens at the time of the removal. These were Peter Jump and Thomas Shawlicker. Peter Jump was probably the same man who was fined in 1730 for not setting stargrass on his part of the sandhills. Thomas Mercer was the clergyman during the interim period and James Mount from 1741 to 1770. 
1772, the parsonage was built in Green Lane, paid for by a general tax on the population of Formby, to which Roman Catholics, as well as Protestants, contributed. In consideration of this, the sum of £80 was repaid to the Roman Catholic people of the village when in 1796 they were in need of funds to help with the repair of their own chapel. Many alterations to the structure of St Peter's have been made since it was first built. In 1900, a beautiful timbered roof replaced the plaster ceiling and a pulpit was erected in memory of the Reverend Lonsdale Formby, squire and parson in the mid-19th century. In 1935, the church was restored to its original Georgian plan by the removal of the north and south galleries, revealing the full beauty of the windows and the good proportions of the nave. A new organ was installed in 1947 as a war memorial to the men of the parish who died in the Second World War. There is a brass on the west wall which bears the names of the Lords of the Manor of Formby from the year 1205, the earlier ones being somewhat conjectural. As Formby's oldest church and as a successor to the early chapel, St Peter's occupies a unique position in the religious life of Formby. It's absolutely fascinating. And the thing is, we can go round Formby and see all these things today. The baptismal font in the porchway for St Luke's Church, down by the beach. You can see St Peter's Church in its finest splendour. Thanks to the Formby Society for allowing us to produce for you the audiobook. Thanks to Joan Rimmer for reading Viking Village, The Story of Formby by Edith Kelly, published in 1973. We'll see you next time for Chapter 4. Formby Podcast is an independent production. If you'd like us to tell your story, email us at formbypodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.